Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you've given to us. Lord, thank you for lives that are full of many sweet things that we love and get to enjoy. Thank you particularly for your grace that we get to enjoy the fullness and the sweet things of life uh, with our eyes on you as the giver of those good things that should cause us to worship and praise and rejoice in the wonderful gifts that you have given to us as your children. We know we deserve none of them, and yet you lavish and lavish and lavish upon us uh, both eternal blessings that we experience, and in your kindness, you also allow us to enjoy temporal blessings as well. So this morning, as we join together and look at your word and seek to grow and be more like Jesus and to grow more in love with Jesus, I pray that you would use your word and your spirit, that he would work in us to make us humble, moldable, Lord, that we would sin less as a result of the time that we spend together, that we would worship more, that we would be more useful for your purposes. Lord, that we would be good members of the body of Christ, peaceable and aiding the unity that you desire for your people to experience. And where there's sin and weaknesses, Lord, I pray that you would grant to us repentance in those things and growth. Lord, help us now as we come before you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Did everybody receive an outline on your way in? Did you grab one off the table? If you didn't, uh, now is a good time to go get one, and you can put it in your folder. We are on semester three, week three, and we're going to be talking about conflict resolution and the call for the believer to maintain unity in the bond of peace. But Before we jump into that, I want to do a little bit of review. This will be the first time this year that we'll go through this together. We went through it many times last year. But if you turn to the back of your folder, if you have um, a new folder, it should be in the back of your folder, this laminated worksheet. If it isn't, uh, then you did not follow my instruction to move it from year one folder to year two. And don't worry, about three quarters of the men looked at me with smirks that I see on some of your faces, revealing that they did not move that over as well. So you can read off of somebody else's or just listen. This key events of the Old Testament worksheet is meant to be a a tool to kind of piece together key events that take place, that took place uh, from creation to the coming of Christ. And so we've been building kind of this roadmap of history, of of what God accomplished, particularly through his people, the nation of Israel. Uh, And as we continue to go through this, we'll interject different pieces like when different books were written and different things like that. So if you have it, have it out. If not, look over somebody's next to you or you can just listen for now. It starts with creation. Uh, We hold to a young earth, meaning that we believe the earth uh, was created somewhere between six to 10,000 years ago. And I I believe it was more likely around the 6,000 years ago timeframe based off of what we see in Genesis, which would put creation roughly around 4,000 BC. God created the heavens and the earth. 
God creates the earth. Everything is good. However, one thing in the sinless state of humanity and creation is not good while sin has not yet entered into the world. And that one thing is that it's not good for man to be alone. God looks at all of his creation. It's good, it's good, it's good. And then he sees one thing that he says is not good prior to the fall, and it's that man is alone. So he makes a helper suitable for man. And we see Adam burst into this wonderful, joyful song of thanksgiving for the wife that the Lord has given to him. And it's great. However, shortly after that, man falls. Sin enters into the world. We see this escalate, this depravity of the heart that's passed on, this sinful nature from Adam to his offspring. We see this escalate so quickly in exponential fashion to the point that by the time Noah's around, the assessment of God, of mankind, is that the intention of his heart is only evil continuously. And so God brings judgment on the world. And what was the means of that judgment? Not a trick question. The flood. The flood. And so God preserves Noah and his family through the ark. They come out of that. God tells Noah and his family to disperse, to to inhabit the earth, to disperse broadly, and to be fruitful and multiply. So what did they do? Obviously, they joined together, they stayed in one place, they grew, and they sought to make a name for themselves with the Tower of Babel. So what does God do? He interjects himself into the circumstance, confounds languages, gives different languages. When they failed to scatter and inhabit, he forces them to through the confusion of language. However, as time goes on, God does make a promise to one man to raise him up to be a nation to bless all other nations. Now, in order for a people to be considered a nation, you need three ingredients. Those ingredients are a people, a constitution, and a land. God brings Abraham and his offspring, or really his offspring at this point, into captivity in Egypt. At that point, there are about 70 people as they enter into Egypt, eventually it's, it's forced captivity in Egypt. And over 400 years, God grows them from 70 to 2 million. God brings them out of Egypt. And now we are roughly 1446 BC when the 10 plagues are God's means to softening Pharaoh's heart to release the people of Israel out of Egypt. And if you're looking on your key events, that's the lightning bolt with the 10 on it, the 10 plagues. So the people of God exit Israel. They cross the Red Sea. At this point, they are two million strong. They are a people. God brings them to Mount Sinai where Moses goes up the mountain and God gives to Moses the law. At that point, they're given their constitution. They have a people and they have a constitution. They have a law that they are to abide by and they are considered a theocracy. What is a theocracy? Religion and government mixed together. Really close. There's a key piece of that that takes it beyond simply government and religion being mixed together, which would be God is the ruler. God is the ruler. So in, in essence, yes, that's right. I would just want to make sure that when we say religion and government mixed together, we mean that God is the ruler. So God is the ruler of them. They don't have a king at this point, but God is ruling over them. And so... 
God calls them to enter into the promised land. They uh, go, they come back, they send spies. The spies say we're grasshoppers among giants. We can't take this land. God punishes them for their disbelief, causes that generation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation passes away. The only two that remain from that generation are Caleb and Joshua. They lead Israel into the promised land. After that time has passed, they cross the Jordan. God calls them to divide and conquer. They do, and now they have their land, and they are the nation of Israel. Within their land, they've got their people, their constitution, and their land. However, God calls them to occupy the land fully. Do they obey? No, they don't drive out all of the inhabitants as God called them to. And so what happens is instead of the submissive obedience that produces blessing, uh, they actually experience cycles of trials brought about by their own sinfulness where they sin, they fall into servitude of other nations, They cry out to the Lord in supplication. God grants to them salvation. They start to rise up over the nations that are oppressing them. And then you experience, they experience times of silence. And over that silence, their hearts drift away again. And those cycles repeat. If you read the book of Judges, that's a great summary of the book of Judges of what's going on. These cycles continue until what we find is among the priesthood in Israel, there becomes just utter and total complete um, sinfulness, corruption among the priests. And we see that really manifest itself in Eli's disobedience and rebellion, and then that manifested in the wickedness of his sons. And the priests who were to be the advocates for the people of God to God are encompassing the immorality of the people of God. At this point, there's no king, no regard for the ark. The capital has been taken over. There's no priesthood as Eli has died. Uh, No land, the Philistines are taken over. And now they're rejecting the theocracy. They're rejecting God as their king. And they're saying, here's the problem. God's our king. We need a king like all the other nations. And so what do they do is they look among themselves and they find a man who looks like all the kings of the other nations. And they find Saul, who is ruddy and a head above the rest. He's considered a mighty man of stature and all the rest. And so they appoint him king. However, he was a king with the wrong heart. Saul had no regard for the ark, which was representative of the law of God. It's where they kept the the tablets of the Ten Commandments and so on. And he was disobedient to God. He had a disregard for the law of God. And so what did God do? He raised up a king after his own heart. And you just see the graciousness of God. He's been rejected as the king of his people, substituted with an immoral, rebellious man. He could have just wiped out the nation then and there. But what does he do? Okay, well, you wanted an earthly king. I'll raise up one after my own heart who will be faithful. And he raises up David, and David was not perfect by any sense of the imagination, but he did have a heart after God's own heart. And you see a significant turn in the nation of Israel under David's leadership. He had a regard for the ark. He was obedient to the Lord. And then there was Solomon, David's son, who had a divided heart. You see wonderful things flow out of Solomon, like a desire for wisdom to rule God's people well when he could be granted anything that his heart desired. And then you see uh, failures of Solomon, where God calls him 
to not build up for himself worldly possessions as a means of securing the nation of Israel, but rather to trust in the Lord for the security of Israel. Solomon does the opposite. God said, don't acquire for yourself horses, wives, and money. Why? Horses were like military power. It's like getting a bunch of fighter jets and tanks. And why, uh, why wives? Two, two reasons. One, the wives or the women of foreign nations will turn your heart away. That's the warning from God. Also, marrying women from other nations was a means of making allegiances with other nations. And so you are both tying your heart to someone who would turn your heart to false gods and you were seeking to create security for your nation by allegiances with other foreign nations. And God said, don't do both of those things. You're not to have allegiances with pagan nations. You're a nation set apart and I'll protect you. And then obviously money, money is power. Solomon went after all of those things. What was the result? In 931, we see a split of the nation of Israel. You've got the 10 northern tribes who are then continued to be referred to as the nation of Israel or Israel. And then you've got the southern two tribes who would then be referred to as Judah. Now, sometimes Judah was also referred to as Israel because they were still in the land of Israel and they were still Israelites. Some of that will come out in the timing of who's talking to whom and when, on when it's referred to Israel and when it's referred to Judah. And there's some key dates that kind of create trends and when that's, on when that's referred to. Which two tribes encompassed Judah, were part of Judah? Judah and Benjamin. And which 10 tribes were part of the northern Israel? All the rest. <laughs> All the rest. If you want a song to learn the 12 tribes of Israel, I can teach you the, the benefits of being homeschooled. I've got a song for everything that I can't remember. Uh, so you've got Israel, the northern 10 tribes, Judah, the southern two. Israel had no good kings. The northern 10 tribes had no good kings from 931 on. And the key date that I was referencing a moment moment ago is 722 BC when Assyria comes in and takes Israel captive, wipes out Israel, and there's no no remnant, no no continuing remnant of those northern ten tribes on. They're wiped out. We actually see the Assyrian nation intermarrying intentionally with Judah to contaminate the bloodline. That was the the term, that's how they would kind of go about things to wipe out the culture. That's where you get the Samaritans. And that's why the Israelites during Christ's time looked down upon the Samaritans so poorly was because they, they viewed them as having their bloodline contaminated and rejecting the ways of Israel because of the influences of the pagan nation. So that is Israel. Uh, the northern tribes, Judah had some good kings. So at 931 BC on, Judah had some good kings, some bad kings. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. You can see some of those um, put forth until 605 BC when Judah or Israel, the, the southern 
tribes were taken into the Babylonian captivity. However, many of the Old Testament prophets speak to Judah and they talk about a remnant that God will preserve and restoration. In fact, in the book of Daniel, he was one of the young men taken in the Babylonian captivity from Judah. And he knew looking at Jeremiah in the end of Daniel 8 and in the beginning of Daniel 9, that there would be a 70 year period of captivity. And he's watching Israel in the captivity, not turn and repent. And so in chapter 9 of Daniel, you see this him lamenting and mourning and sackcloth and going to the Lord in this wonderful, extensive prayer in verses 1 through 19. It's like 3 through 19, where he's crying out to the Lord because he knows from Jeremiah, from the prophet Jeremiah, that God's going to bring them out of captivity in 70 years, after 70 years in the Babylonian captivity, where they'll be restored back into the land. But he's looking at the state of his people going, we, we are wicked and we are evil, but God, be faithful, not for our name's sake, but for your name's sake. It's just so compelling his, what's driving his desire for God to be faithful to God's own word is God's own reputation. And so he cries out to God for these things as they're in captivity. Uh, God actually does bring that about, and that's where we start to see the people of God enter back into the land, and they're given some freedom to go back, and they're given freedom to rebuild the temple, and they're given freedom to rebuild the walls, which is exceptional. And there's two prophets in the Old Testament, two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, and each of those address the rebuilding of the temple. One of them addresses the rebuilding of the temple, and one of them addresses the rebuilding of the walls. Can you remember which is which? Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra's rebuilding the temple and Nehemiah's rebuilding the wall. How do you remember that? Okay, did a precept study on Ezra. How I remember it is that a temple is like one place, concise. Ezra is a shorter name. Nehemiah is longer and walls are longer. That's how I remember it. Okay, yeah, I, I need big helps. <laughs> Small brains need big helps. I need, I need big helps. That helps me. So Ezra and Nehemiah are written at that time. Malachi is written at that time and so on. So why the exile for Babylon? God had purpose for the nation of Israel, for Judah in the Babylonian captivity. One was to cure them of idolatry. Babylon was an egregiously idolatrous nation. They had literal trinkets of idols from little tiny ones to huge ones all over the place. They were all over houses and there was a a growing distaste for idolatry because of the overwhelming saturation of idols in Babylon for the people of God. He also gave them a newfound respect for the law, seeing the, the, um, uh, immorality of Babylon and, and all of the the gross sin that was taking place, and it gave them hope for a Messiah. You're more likely to recognize and long for deliverance when you need it, and you recognize that you need it. They needed it all along, but they recognized it more. So they return back, they prepare for the Messiah, they build the temple, they seek to uh, go back to purity uh, before the Lord. The balls are built. Do they do this perfectly? Absolutely not. We see the sinfulness in the spiritual leaders, especially. There's indictment that Jesus himself puts towards the Pharisees, uh, but Christ does return, and then we go on from there. So 
That is the key events of the Old Testament. Any questions or comments? Crystal clear. We got it. Old Testament scholars. We got it down. If you take that key events document and couple that with some of the dates uh, on the opposite page, uh, it's really helpful to kind of see when those different books fit in with those various events. And then you should have received the Old Testament story, which also, um, did you, do you guys have this page in your folder or maybe your last year folder? Probably in your last year folder. If, if it should be in your last year folder, it was in the, the packet. It kind of fits in the different books. And particularly what's helpful is seeing Hosea and Amos were written to Israel. And so if you look at the dates on this page, uh, where is it? There we go. Hosea 755 to 715. That tells you that Hosea was prophesying right up and then through the Assyrian captivity to Israel who was taken into the Assyrian captivity. And so when you see this like theme of destruction, 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 and not a whole lot of, here's the future of restoration, you go, oh, well, that makes sense. And then you read another prophet like uh, Joel, or I mean, any of the ones to Judah, and there's always the incorporation of a future restoration of God righting the wrong. And you're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. He's giving hope to the nation that he's actually going to, the portion of the nation that he's going to preserve. Um, now, there is a time when God will bring all tribes back together in the nation of Israel, and that is coming, but uh, that's for another day's discussion. Okay, we're going to transition to our outline for this morning. Conflict resolution. Conflict, we live in a fallen, bent world. Conflict is inevitable because we live in it. We live in this world. And we have lusts, we have strong passions within us. Uh, We live among others in communities. We're going to butt heads. That's not an endorsement of it. That's not that we should long for that. But that's just a reality. Each one of us can look at points in our life where we go, oh yeah, there was some, to varying degrees, there was conflict that I had to navigate. And especially if you're married, there's going to be differences of opinions, differences of thoughts, moments of weakness, moments where you sin. And we need to understand both God's intention for how we are to conduct ourselves one with another, and how are we to navigate conflict when we find ourselves in it, in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? How do we work through conflict to the glory of God? How do we really uh, embrace and follow what Paul puts forth in Ephesians 4, which is the call to maintain unity within the church in the bond of peace? And so we're going to talk particularly with the Uh, focus on unity within the church and navigating conflict within the church. Uh, But these principles and this call to live peaceably goes beyond just in the church. So we absolutely need to live peaceably within the body of Christ, Uh, whether that's your husband or one another, 
or whatever the case may be. But God calls us to be peaceable to, in as much as it has to do with us, live at peace with all men. And so many of these principles go beyond simply the body of Christ as if we can uh, need, as if we need to be compassionate and patient and kind one with another here. But the moment we walk out the door and we're with the world, we can be gruff, unloving, impatient, and harsh. No, these principles are called to be virtues and character attributes of us at all times, and it should be most expressed, most most faithfully and intentionally expressed within the church because of God's desire for what we are to be as the body of Christ, which is unified one with another. There is conflict. We will navigate conflict. And we must understand on the forefront that the biggest threat to the unity that God desires for us with one another, and the biggest threat to peace within the body of Christ that God desires is not something external. It's each one of us. Each one of us should be able to say with full true conviction, I'm the biggest threat to the unity that God desires within his church. And that's true for your family. You're the biggest threat, or better said for me, I'm the biggest threat to the unity, to the peace that God desires for there to be in my family, both my immediate family and the family, the body of Christ. And so how should we think about these things? How should we think about navigating the tendency for conflict, the inevitable nature that there will be an opportunity for conflict to arise? Now, we know from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has seized us, but what is common to man, right? It's not a unique temptation for any of us to find ourselves in conflict, sinning against one another. That's not a unique, unusual struggle, We all may have nuanced circumstances in which we are tempted towards those things, but the temptation towards conflict, towards selfishness, towards anger is not a unique temptation. And the promise from God is that with the temptation, there's a way of escape. And so as we think through the reality that we will be faced with potential conflicts, how do we fortify and guard ourselves so that when that way of escape presents itself, we are well ready to take it to not step into conflict that would be dishonoring, displeasing to God, and a disruption to the unity that God desires for us to experience. Well, there are several things that we need to understand. We'll work through these together this morning. First of all is God's design for unity and peace in the church. That's what we'll start with looking at. And if you have your Bible, turn it to Ephesians chapter 4. And this passage is really the, the foundation under this call for how to navigate conflict and the call to navigate conflict, the call to maintain unity, the call to live peaceably. In Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, we'll look at it together. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, starting in verse 1, Therefore, I... The prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Paul then gives explanation to the oneness of 
of the body. After this call, the main command in verses one through three is walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And then all of the other descriptors there is Paul describing what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So walk in a manner worthy of the calling, how? Well, being humble, gentle, patient, show tolerance in love, be diligent to preserve unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Why? There's one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over uh, of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you see a theme in those following verses? Maybe a repetitive word that should catch your attention. One, 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 one. And all of this is on the heels of the call to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. This isn't walk in a manner worthy of being given the calling, right? You've been called. You've been set apart. This is not, we've got to be good enough for God. We've got to merit his love. That is almost always a temptation of the human heart when we see lists like this or instruction like this to think, oh, this is what I must do to earn God's favor and kindness to me. That's not how God presents these things. You have been called. You have been saved. You have been shown grace. You have been set apart for God's purposes out of no merit of your own. It is all God's love, all God's grace. Now, in light of this, live in accordance to the work that he's accomplished in you. Live this way in response to God out of love for God. And the primary focus of living in accordance to the calling that you've been given is a unified godly disposition, a humble, patient, gracious, tolerating, preserving of unity in the spirit in the bond of peace being one with one another. A valuing of God's glory and living in accordance with God's work over any other thing, any comfort, any horizontal vindication, like they need to know I'm right and so I'm going to die on this hill so that they understand. No, I want God to be honored and thus I need to live peaceably with the other person who's, there's potential conflict. I, I remember years ago having a conversation with Julie's dad and we were talking about marriage and his marriage. And he was telling me a story about his mom and dad. So this is Julie's grandma and grandpa. They were just precious gifts from the Lord. They were so sweet. Just the, the like prototypical, loving, involved, generous, kind, godly grandparents. But they became believers later in life. And Julie's dad was asking his dad, so Julie's grandpa, hey, I've never seen you and mom fight. I've never seen you raise your voice to mom, even, even before you were Christians. Tell me about that. And this was when he was a younger man talking to his dad, gleaning wisdom. And his dad said, your mom, it just means everything to me. What in this world would be worth becoming angry over her about what's what more what more important thing in this world is there than her and that was the perspective at that time of even a non-believer about how he viewed his wife that's incredibly indicting (laughs) 
that he would have such an esteem for his wife that everything else that might potentially cause him to treat her poorly played second fiddle to her. Okay, that's how we should be all the more with God. What on this world, what argument, what issue, what point to prove, what desire could we possess that would supersede our desire to live and walk in a manner worthy of our calling? What argument could we face where we need to be right? We need to be heard. We need to get our point across. They need to understand is more important than I need to be holy and worship my creator. That's the call for us. We have the spirit of God dwelling in us. We are called to live for God's glory. We've been shown immeasurable kindness in Christ. We think about kindness and it, it falls flat. <laughs> if we think about kindness in a Romans 2 sort of way, that it's the kindness of the Lord that's brought us to repentance, we probably interject the appropriate weight that kindness should have. Sometimes we think about, oh, be kind. Okay, that's kind of trite. Yeah, okay, I'll say a nice word. The kindness of God to us is overwhelmingly compelling, that he would be kind to us. We deserve wrath. We deserve justice. And he was kind and patient and long-suffering. And so, what words describe one who's walking in a manner that is worthy of their calling? Well, we see it there in Ephesians 4, verse 2. Humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, and not a begrudging tolerance, right? Like, um, we would never do this with our kids, but you know what it's like, somebody else's kid who's just nagging and you're like, yeah, you know, I'm tolerating this annoyance, but in my heart, I'm kind of distancing myself. No, nobody else has ever experienced. Maybe it's just with your kids. I don't know. Maybe it's your husband's. You tolerate your husband. Um, oftentimes we can think of tolerance as kind of like this begrudging putting up with something. That's not what God calls us to when he says, tolerate one another in love. That's a crucifying of your own preferences and desires to serve the other in love, in consideration. We've talked about recently in 1 Peter 1 what it means to love one another fervently, to be committed to the other's ultimate good regardless of the cost to yourself. So tolerate things that may get under your skin, may annoy you, personality differences, preferences of life and activities and how maybe going, maybe there's freedoms of how to do things and you prefer something done one way and they do it the other. And you choose to set those aside, to tolerate those differences in love, meaning that you tolerate it in a setting aside of your own desires for the purpose of committing yourself to their ultimate good, regardless of the cost. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, is to live that way. This is important. It's, it's not an issue of preference. We're called to peace and unity with each other. This needs to be the case in the body of Christ, but it also needs to be the case in our families, in our marriages, with our children, with our spouses. God needs to be honored in our commitment to peace. 
This is not keeping the peace or avoiding hard conversations for the sake of just running away from hard conversations. Conflict is you are two people sinning against one another. Your hearts are not right before the Lord. There are certainly times as moms where you need to exert your authority and it might get disruptive among your kids. They might not respond in all of the bliss that you would hope in that moment. You need to respond in godliness. That doesn't mean avoiding issues. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. Uh, Living at peace, maintaining unity, does not mean stepping away from potentially hard circumstances. But it does mean putting on these virtues that God calls us to. Love, humility, patience, and so forth. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33, you can just listen. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So there should be nothing that we do in our conduct that brings about an unnecessary offense. The gospel's offensive. That's, that's pretty much all we got that we're able to <laughs> be offensive. And even that, the gospel is offensive. That doesn't mean we get to hold it in an offensive manner, right? Just because the gospel's offensive doesn't mean I'm allowed to be a rebel rouser, to be gruff, to have outbursts of anger, to be insulting towards others. Uh, the gospel truth being offensive and indicting to one who's in rebellion against God doesn't mean I can then forsake the character virtues that God calls me to in how I hold this offensive message. Um, I'm actually still called to be peaceable. I'm still called to be patient. I'm still called to be humble. I'm also called to be courageous and to be uncompromising on biblical truth. But how you do that is critical, how you do that in your home, how you hold to biblical truth in your home is important. Give no offense. Don't conduct yourself in a way that is unloving, unkind. Then verse 33, Paul says, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. Again, he's seeking to remove unnecessary stumbling blocks in his behavior. This is not what it's oftentimes confused with, which is go embrace the culture around you so that you're like everybody so that you don't offend them. That's not what Paul's saying at all. He's saying there's a consideration of others in his actions where he seeks to crucify his own desires, his own preferences for the sake of not being an unnecessary offense to others. If somebody doesn't like caffeinated coffee at night, I'll make decaf coffee. The Lord's grown me. Five years ago, that wasn't me. <laughs> you know, there's just silly things like that that we think through in our mindset of, hey, I could easily give this up if it blesses another around me. We should be eager to embrace those things, not, not relentless in holding on to our rights, our preferences. It's really important to me that things are done this way in the home. Really? Is it more important than the virtues that God calls you to? being patient, being loving, considering others. And then all after that, um, 
or rather the next passage, Colossians 3, Paul also says, and this really mirrors the passage in Ephesians 4, so as those who have been chosen of God, again, you see that calling, those who have been chosen of God. So this is Colossians 3, 12 through 14, holy and beloved, that's set apart for God and loved by God, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. This is that showing tolerance idea, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against you. Not he, he doesn't even say when sinned against. He, he says he broadens it even more, the extent of forgiveness. If you just simply have a complaint, forgive that person. There's no room for, hey, there's conflict right here because you did this to me and I didn't like it. Well, I didn't even know you didn't like it. Well, it's a complaint. Was it sin? No, but I'm upset about it. Well, you need to forgive. Put on a heart of compassion. Bear with one another. So many conflicts. It's heartbreaking how many uh, non-reconciled, irreconciled, however you'd say it, So many instances within the body of Christ where reconciliation doesn't take place stems from unintended uh, offenses. They weren't even started out of an overt sin against another. Just unintended lack of consideration that offends somebody. They hold on to bitterness roots up. They say something unkind. That person's caught off guard. What, what did I do that was offensive to you? Then they respond in kind and it escalates and you have to pull back about 20 layers to get to an issue that was not even really an issue. And so if you simply embrace Colossians 3 in your own heart to not hold offenses, to forgive, to, to bear with one another, uh, we would extinguish a lot of these potential things that escalate. And then verse 14, Paul says, beyond all these things, again, put on love. Why? Love is the perfect bond of unity. A, an abandoning of self for the best interest of the other, regardless of the cost, is the greatest bond of unity. And it needs to happen reciprocally. We, we need to do that one with another. All of us do that. And And when that's not happening from your perspective, from those around you, that's not an excuse to abandon God's call for you. You're still obligated before the Lord to live that way. It doesn't get you off the hook. And you might think, but if I live this way, I'm going to get taken advantage of. In my home, my husband, he's going to take advantage of me. I'm going to always get the short end of the stick. I'm never going to get what I want. Well, then you have some heart searching to do. What do you really want? Do you most of all want to be obedient to the Lord? Because if you do, your husband's response doesn't have a bearing in that. You can get what you most want. You can glorify God regardless of his response, regardless of his actions. If what you want most is what you view as a comfortable, easy life where you get your way, yes, you might not get that. And you know what? That's probably a grace from the Lord to you. Because when we get everything that we want to make this life easy, 
that usually leads to not looking to the Lord like we ought. And so you can trust the Lord. I talked about this yesterday with the men. There's just no circumstance. We, we build up these scenarios in our mind. I'm going to get the short end of the stick if I live this way. As a Christian, there's no future scenario where you get the short end of the stick. You've already received the largest stick. <laughs> You've been given salvation. You've been forgiven of your sins. You have eternity with Christ. You will be given a glorified body where you will never sin again and you will enjoy Christ perfectly for eternity, worshiping him and fellowship with him and fellowship with God's people. And you deserved none of that. There's, there's no, I'm not getting what I deserve. You don't want what you deserve. God sent his son so that we would not get what we deserve. And so, yes, it's hard. It's humbling. It can be painful. In certain circumstances, it can be exceptionally painful and difficult. But God says light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory. What's coming is far better than any hardship that you might experience in this life temporally. And it will always be better for you before the Lord if you simply yield to him in obedience and godliness, even if the earthly circumstances are hard. Okay. Getting me all riled up this morning. All right. My heart needs it. Next, the source of my conflicts. The source of my conflicts. If you didn't, you know, maybe feel beat up enough, we're going to take another run at it. (laughs) James 4, the source of our conflicts. God was not silent in helping us understand where these conflicts come from. We talked about it at the beginning. James says it better. Chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? He, he's not asking, trying to discover. It, is it your, your members? No, it's, it's a question of indictment. It's a question of reality. The source is your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. The root of every true conflict before the Lord is my own strong passions. My flesh, my lusts wages war against me. In fact, in First Peter 2, we're going to see in the coming weeks that our flesh is at war against us. Regardless of what you thought when you woke up this morning, you were at war, I'm at war, and the enemy is our own flesh. It is waging war against us. We've got to fight. Ultimately, if I am in conflict, the source has to do with me. You might say, but you don't know this person. You don't know what it's like to be friends with them to live with them, to have a relationship with them. You don't know how they are. I don't need to know how they are. God knows how they are. And God said this, the source is ourselves. That doesn't mean that we will never have to navigate hard relationships 
or hard circumstances, but conflict in our own heart that arises, it's from our own passions, our own lusts, our own envious tendencies. And how easy is it to be in conflict with someone and what do we typically do? They're the problem. If, if they wouldn't have done this, I never would have done this. That's just simply not true. Every outward expression of sin is rooted out of an inward reality of your own heart. It's not the result of an external thing being done to you. If sin comes out of you, it's not, well, I only yelled at my kid because they did this. No. Don't give your kid more credit than they're due. They can't pull that out of you. That, that flows out of your heart. That means that was in your heart. James 1 tells us this very thing. When lusts, when strong passions conceive in the heart, they give birth and it gives birth to sin. So whether it's a desire for control or ease or comfort or whatever it may be, we idolatrize that, we idolize that rather, and when we don't get it, we sin. So if only the tendency to believe that if only they were as godly as me, we'd never be in this mess is one that we have to fight. We have to understand, ultimately, I am the source of the conflicts. I'm the one who needs to be addressed first and most in every situation. Galatians 5 verses 19 through 20 says this, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. So this flesh that wages war that we're to no longer live in accordance to, but rather we're to live by the fruits of this or the fruit of the spirit. The deeds of the flesh are this, they're evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Wow, those sound really bad. Well, what else does he include? Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, whoa, whoa, I just don't like the person and don't want to be around them. You're putting it in this list of like horrible things. Again, I didn't put it in this list. God did. (laughs) This is serious. Unity, not living in factions, being um, at peace with one another is important. He goes on to say envying, drunkenness, carousing, and carousing and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God but the fruit of the spirit in contrast to this what we are to live by what we're to put on is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control so that's God's call for us the source of the conflicts is our own Lusts, our own passions, our own flesh, us, we're the problem. Now, quickly, I want to highlight some sinful ways of avoiding conflict. Okay, God desires us to live at peace. I'm the problem. What should I do to deal with it? Well, here's things that you shouldn't do. And then we'll wrap up with some things that you should do. I'm going to move a little bit quicker through these because I want to be sure to leave time for questions because these are big, weighty, true realities that sometimes have to be navigated with with nuanced wisdom in various circumstances. I want to be able to hear your questions and talk through those things if at all possible. What are some sinful ways of avoiding conflict? Just keeping quiet just not going to deal with it. The silent treatment, 
I'm going to get this person to stop doing what I don't like so that they might do what I do like by punishing them. And I'm going to clothe it in self-righteousness that says, I'm not going to yell and scream. I'm just going to be quiet and reclusive and separate myself from the situation. That is not an effective way of avoiding conflict. I'm just going to sit on this thing. Uh, Because typically, if you're just sitting on this dissatisfaction in your heart, what's going to root up inside of you? I heard somebody say something. What's that? Bitterness, exactly. Bitterness. We'll talk about that as the first thing in God-honoring ways of navigating conflict, to avoid bitterness, not to be bitter, avoid it. Also, just stay away from one another. I just got to get away from you. I just can't be around this person, right? Uh, Somebody you're at conflict with in the church, they did something to offend you, you did something to offend them, they didn't respond the right way, and so they walk in the door, they go over here, you walk in the door, you see them over here, you go over there. I'm just not going to be around that person. It's too much trouble. It's too difficult. I'm going to keep the peace by avoiding the person. Not a God-honoring way of navigating conflict. Not cultivating peace and oneness in the body of Christ. About this, uh, change the subject, avoid the issue. Hey, can we talk about something? No, I want to talk about anything but that thing. <laughs> Let's just... Hey, we'll just let bygones be bygones. It's in the past, okay? Unless you actually have forgiven, unless you actually have forgiven, that is an incredibly unhelpful way of working through conflict. And if you have forgiven, take the time, if the person wants to discuss an issue, to express the forgiveness genuinely and work through that issue. And even here, where maybe you need to seek forgiveness in the matter. So simply avoiding the issue or running away from it is not going to help. Do you see a, a trend here? Kind of playing, playing ostrich is not a good way of navigating conflict. I'm just going to avoid it. Just going to keep quiet, stay away, change the subject, avoid the issue, or hide information or sins and bitterness. Um, honey, what's wrong? Nothing, nothing's wrong. <laughs> uh, it seems like something. No, I said nothing's wrong. You know, <laughs> it's not helpful. It's not going to resolve anything. Hiding information, hiding sins, uh, giving root to bitterness, so forth. All right, what are some God-honoring ways to navigate conflict? Let's say we are at odds with somebody. uh, We're working through an issue. Well, first we need to understand the danger of bitterness. Bitterness taking root in your heart is contrary to living under the grace of God. Um, Hebrews 12, 15, you can listen See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That's essentially not living in a manner worthy of the calling. Um, That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. That's the danger of bitterness. It causes trouble and it is defiling. So understand the danger of bitterness. Deal with it. Address it. Don't let any, any inkling of a root of bitterness rise up in your heart. And that can be hard. It it can be subtle. Uh, I remember early on at Grace Bible Church, when it was first planted, Julie and I were very young. There was a lot of people who were friends and close, and we'd come to church, and it was like 20 people talking about what they all did together that weekend, and then us. (laughs) 
We're like, oh, that sounded like a lot of fun. <laughs> okay, well, why didn't we get invited? Is there something wrong with us? We want to be a part of fun. We like fun. Are we not fun? Okay, we're nerds. Deal with us. Okay, it'll be okay. But we had to guard our hearts. And, and in hindsight, the Lord actually protected us from all sorts of hardship that, that people experienced early in, in the life of that church. But there's definitely a, a temptation for things like that just to creep in, just side-passing comments of discontentment. Why didn't they do this? Why, they always do this. You know, and, and bitterness can just very subtly, easily creep in, and it's destructive. Some other principles. If you want to turn to the book of Proverbs, we're going to jump around quite a bit, or you're welcome to listen, because I am going to move a, a little bit quick here. But gather plenty of data before speaking, if possible. Proverbs eighteen thirteen. says, he who gives an answer before he hears, it's a folly and a shame to him. Verse 17 of the same chapter, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Hearing both sides of the story, hearing before you speak. This was, this was something, these passages were egregiously violated when all of the social justice issues were really prevalent in the media, where you'd get a 10 second clip of something on YouTube or the, or the news, and then definitive holistic statements about first responders were made in response to one situation that you 3,000 miles away of are making definitive comments because you saw a 10-second video clip. Just the foolishness in making, even if, even if you were right, even if you were, which that's a complete hypothetical that I don't think is actually true, uh, even if you were, it violates this principle to make such quick definitive statements without hearing both sides of the story, without gathering information. It's just foolish. And we do that with each other often as well. You hear of somebody doing something and you make determinations in your heart without actually drawing the person out. And again, so many circumstances can be diffused if you simply, if you're struggling with an offense, go ask the person, hey, I heard that, I heard that you said this. Was that true? Well, no, I, well, yeah, I did, but I was talking about this. Oh, that makes sense. It's just take the time, take the effort to hear from one another. Hear both sides of the story. Gather plenty of data before speaking. Pray, study, and think about the issue before speaking if possible. Proverbs fifteen twenty eight says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Listen, if you're in a conversation with somebody and you say something and, and, uh, or they say something rather, and you're not sure that you agree, maybe take some time to ponder. I had a conversation with somebody a couple weeks ago where I said something. They didn't agree wholeheartedly at first thought. And they said, huh, that's interesting. I'm going to need to think about that some. That was a wonderful response. They weren't defensive. They weren't argumentative. And they wanted to take to heart and ponder and bring before the Lord the comment that was made. That this person's the easiest person to live with, to get along with as a friend, a dear brother in Christ. And he responded in a wonderful way when I wasn't intentionally trying to create a source of conflict. But if he had, if he had taken that the wrong way or responded harshly, it it could have very much changed the difference in the tone of the conversation. 
And so where you have opportunity, if, if you're talking with your husband or you're talking with your uh, friend or a sibling or whatever the case may be, if they say something that's hard to hear, don't rush to defend yourself. Write it down. Can I th- I'm not sure that I agree yet, but I'd love some time to think and ponder about this and pray about this. That's okay. That's much better than, well, no, you're wrong, or ask clarifying questions. When you say this, do you mean this? No, I don't mean that. Oh, okay. What do you mean? Let me take another stab at it. Um, Be self-controlled and loving in your speech, Proverbs 51. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You are called to be gentle in your responses. And it has a de-escalating effect on the nature of the conversation. The tendency of most of our hearts is to bully the other person with our tone and our intensity. Why did you do this? Why do you think I did that? You're, oh, okay, sorry. No, a gentle answer. That's what we're called to hear. Proverbs 4, 8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. Oftentimes that verse is viewed as, I can forgive in love, and so that sin is covered. God calls us to forgive. We already looked at Colossians 3, right? That's a true reality, that love should be able to overlook and endure lots of offenses. I actually think 1 Peter 4, 8 is talking about this principle of of, uh, Proverbs 15, 1, that love de-escalates, it covers the escalating nature of a whole bunch of different sins. And so when you respond in a hard situation in love, it keeps that circumstance from escalating in ways that it otherwise might. We'll get there in a couple years in First Peter 4, but I actually, when we were talking about the one another's early on at Gilbert Bible, I preached a two-part series of First Peter 4 I think it was uh, 6 through 8, or no, 6 through 11 maybe, um, two parts, and I talked about that. So if you want to hear more on that, you can go back and look at that series on the one another um, message on First Peter 4. Pray together. Remember together what the goal is. Be self-controlled and loving in your speech, but also be loving and kind to the other person. If things are starting to escalate, to pause the conversation and say, we're both children of God, can we just pray right now and seek God's help? Remember the gospel. Thank him for love for one another. Pray that he'd be honored in the conversation. Confess sin. I I have noticed in my heart already an eagerness to want to be right and to be impatient. Would you forgive me for that? Can we try again and start afresh in the conversation? Listen more than you speak. I'm jumping down because we're in Proverbs. Listen more than you speak, but do speak. Proverbs 10, 19 says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. Or where words are many, sin abounds. Um, be slow to speak. However, Proverbs 25, 11 partnered with that passage is super helpful. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in the right circumstances. So be slow to speak, because if you just blah, 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 you're most likely going to sin. If you're uncontrolled, not thoughtful, you're most likely going to sin. But 
the right word at the right time is so helpful. So be slow to speak, but do speak in a way that's helpful. Demonstrate or communicate your love and care at the time of the disagreement. Romans 12 is so informative, so helpful. We'll end here. Romans 12, verses 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. What might this look like? You cannot wait to share how what they did affected you and get it off your chest and you stop and you say, this must be really hard for you as well right now. I'd love to hear what's on your heart. Are there ways that I've offended you? Can you help me understand that? Are there ways that you would have rather that I navigated this situation that would have been a bigger blessing to you? Would you help me understand that? Did I offend you in what I said and what I did? Oh, I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me? I did not intend to forgive you, but I definitely understand how it was offensive. I don't want to live that way. Consider the other person. Be devoted to one another. Humble yourself. And be, these aren't just going through the motions of the words, right? You have to mean them. Your heart has to be there. But that's what God calls us to. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. In matters of preference, prefer the other person. Be more interested in God's glory and the other's good rather than having your own way or being right. Tom said this in kind of a post-conversation discussion yesterday. He said, I'd rather be the one sinned against than the one to sin against. So he would rather be sinned against by another than to be the one to sin against another. That's just the right attitude that we should have in every circumstance. We will, we will endure others' failures, but we really fear sinning against the Lord and being an offense to someone else. Romans 15, 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ was willing to go to the cross for us. Okay, we can bear with one another. We can, we can seek to be a blessing, to please one another, to be an encouragement to one another. And then we looked at Colossians 3 already, but love, forgive, clothe your heart with godly virtues. That's the call for us. It is very easy to spout off all these passages and all these principles on a Saturday morning, not in the heat of the moment. It is much harder to live these things. It requires heart shepherding. That's why this is a discipline one, discipline two, discipline three call. Because this starts with you exposing your heart, bringing before the Lord these things in prayer personally. It needs to be practiced first and foremost in your home and it needs to spill out and overflow into the relationships that we have with one another. But it takes prayerful dependence and intentional pursuit to live this way. And it takes humility to repent when we fail, to seek forgiveness, to, to say, I did not navigate that situation as I should have. Would you please forgive me? Without making demands that the other person must likewise respond with seeking your forgiveness. 
There are no strings attached. I am aware of my failures before the Lord, the lack of love towards you, and that's what I'm concerned with dealing with right now. So I'm going to humble myself, confess my sins, and then trust the Lord with the heart of the other person. That's what God calls us to. And listen, God is trustworthy. Even if the circumstance spirals and goes a direction we wish it wouldn't, God's trustworthy. And so we can look to him. All right. What? That's a lot. What questions do you have? Yes. Yeah. And the qu- the question is how do you help the heart issues that aren't shifting even if the behavior issues shift in older children uh, when you're when you're navigating that. So James 1 or James 4 can be really helpful to sit with them. So first of all, um uh you know, sometimes sometimes when they're not responding with the attitude or contriteness, we might want them to sense our presence in the situation to get them to do what. And so things like threats come out, things like outbursts come out. I just can't take you acting this way. You know, things like that can flow out of us. And at that point, we're repaying evil with evil. We're we're responding in a way that we are not satisfied, even if it's good intentions, we're not satisfied with the, the heart or the response that they're getting, that they're giving to us. And so we're trying to make sure they sense our presence in that moment so that then they conform to our desires. What we need to help them do is understand the Lord's presence so that they submit to his desires. And so we should not posture ourselves as a bully to our children. That doesn't mean that speaking with a stern tone or a serious disposition is unwarranted. That's necessary. Outbursts of anger are not okay. But a, hey, look at me. This is serious, and this is not okay before the Lord. This is not acceptable in our household. It's not what the Lord calls us to. Now, open up your Bible to James 4. Right now, I want to hear from you. What is your heart's attitude? I'm angry. Or, okay, your lack of response reveals you are angry. You are not submissive. What do you believe? What does God say this is coming out of? Help them understand the root of their rebellion. And we, we, we always disciplined, not just for actions, but for attitudes. And so uh, just because of their age, it, it might be a season where uh, discipline with the rod is no longer appropriate, but that doesn't mean that discipline is no longer appropriate for the wrong attitude. So 
we would put God's word before them and give them tools to go to the Lord in prayer, to change their attitude, um, to seek the Lord, to help change their attitude to one of submission and respect and honor towards their parents, because that's what God calls them to. So if they're just kind of grumpy the rest of the day, say there's a discipline moment, there's an admonishment, and then there's just kind of a, a pouty, I might sit down and just, hey, we need to look at something right now. This is God's word and you're violating it and that's not okay. And I want to help you. Um, what's nice as your kids get older is to varying degrees, you can draw them out depending on the kids. Some, some kids are harder to draw out than others. And some of your kids are harder to draw out than others of your kids. But there is opportunity as they get kind of to the, to the preteen and teen years where you can reason with them in ways that you can't and shouldn't reason with a two-year-old. Um, but the temptation is the same. Ultimately, you're the authority. With a two-year-old, sometimes they want to know why. They don't want to know why. They want to manipulate you. Your 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old doesn't really want to walk the path of really getting to the heart root issue of their sin. They want to manipulate you too. Um, and so you have to be discerning how long to walk that path and when to kind of just say, this is the expectation. And until then, these consequences are present. And that's, that's the discipline that God calls us to bring to our children. There's not like a one for one, here's what you do in every situation because there's nuances, but those are some of the principles that, that we think through and, and try to navigate in those situations. I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like that actually answered your question. I talked a lot and I didn't answer it. Anne, you have anything you want to add? Okay. <laughs> you know what's really sweet is um, parenting older children and we're, our plan, so we just did a parenting class from birth to five-year-olds as the emphasis. And, oops, sorry. We actually um, recorded those classes. If you'd like to hear them, email me and we can let you listen to those classes. Uh, our plan is sometime on the earlier side of next year to do kind of a six-year-old to preteen parenting class and then sometime next year to also do a teenager parenting class where we can talk through some of these things. Um, but I, we had a men's coffee fellowship one morning uh, last year, not this last summer, but the previous summer. And uh, a sweet man in our church made a comment. It's just the sweetest uh, comment. He's like, oh, Josh, your kids are so great. I can't wait till my kids are, are older because parenting is just so much easier. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you naive, foolish man. <laughs> you have no idea. It's not easier, uh, but it's sweet. It is wonderful. And when you, th when you just read the book of Proverbs and you see the wealth of information that the Lord gives to us about just how to navigate life. And then you think about the privilege that it is to come across, uh, come alongside a soul who is starting to navigate real life issues with adult emotions in a child's body that's close to adulthood. And you're helping equip them with these, these truths. God hasn't been stingy in the tools that he's given us to navigate life or to help our children navigate life. And then you understand Proverbs is the dad giving to his sons wisdom to navigate life. Uh, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful responsibility that should and makes, it should make everybody feel like they're way in over their head. And yet the Lord is just gracious and, and it's, 
it's sweet, but it is weighty and it is hard. Any other questions that I can respond with talking for five minutes and not actually answer? <laughs> it's a great question. It's, it, I, I hope that was somehow helpful. Any follow-ups, Alexis, to that question? No? Oh, okay. All right. Praise God. Anything else? What else? Mm-hmm. Wait, what? You really? Yeah, <laughs> I've heard about people that way. Yeah, you've heard about <laughs> Yep. And it's gone forever. How are you going to respond? So sometimes just putting yourself in their shoes. And it's not asking for the people who come alongside and ask the question. You know, I understand it's hard for you. Your attitude right now is, you know, it's not right. Yeah. It's really good. There's, there's also just the, the, propensity to be a hypocrite in your home is going to be more realized. It's always realized with your children, but it's going to be more realized with older children. So if you're calling them to submit to you joyfully and you watch Biden on the news and just every comment that comes out of your mouth is slanderous towards the president and dissatisfied and reveals a distrust in the Lord when he says no ruler is placed without his authority placing them. Um, When you talk about your boss at work or even your husband's authority over your life, if, if you are characterized by a disgruntledness and reluctance in your submission, and then you say, but when I tell you to do something, you need to do it with, you know, obey all the way, right away with a happy heart. <laughs> but you're not characterized by that before the Lord. That's going to be tough. That's going to be tough for your kids. Um, so some of this, some of your best parenting is going to flow out of your own heart shepherding of yourself. You're going you're gonna to feel hindered in being able to tell your child not to speak harshly to your other child when you just yelled at your husband. You're just going to, that's good. Don't yell at your, oh, wait a minute. Husband, would you forgive me? Kids, would you forgive me for you? <laughs> now don't yell at your sibling. 
<laughs> you know that so so those all those things come into play uh but and that's really that's really insightful and helpful when you're thinking through helping them navigate just how to function in life hey i know i i know it's hard i know it's hard to change your attitude when you're in in a funk um here's what i do can i help you do that can we do that together and then yeah patience patience and that is helpful what else Yes, Jessica. Great, great question. So the question is, uh, Ephesians 4, tolerate, with one, tolerate one another in love, giving, you know, you give preference to the other. If you're always giving preference to the other person's preferences, how do you, um, particularly, what does that look like in elder meetings? Um, it's way more efficient and, quite honestly, easier to navigate with three elders than with 11. <laughs> it's just... It's just uh, less nuanced. It, it was harder with 11 elders to navigate and unentangle those things. Uh, one of the biggest helps in navigating that is a self-awareness of your own preferences worth versus convictions. Uh, also, the delegation of roles is really helpful in providing clarity because if uh, Tyler has a preference and I have a preference right now in regards to youth ministries— it is very easy for me to say, we're going with your preference because that's your area of responsibility and you should have the freedom to lead and run forward within your preference. And you know what Tyler typically does? But I want to know your preference <laughs> because you have wisdom and I want to hear your wisdom. And so it's, it, it's actually almost a comical outdoing one another in honor, working through some of those things um, where and being clear, like, hey, how should we go about this? Well, here's the options. This is how I would lean, but you have pref- you have freedom to choose any of those options. Any of those would be good. There's probably other ones I haven't thought of, uh, but here's here's my thoughts on it. And so you just kind of hold it loosely, and then the person that has responsibility over that area kind of drives forward. Now, where that becomes a little bit more nuanced is if we're talking about an issue where there's not one specific elder who's over that specific ministry and we have to work together. But some of that is just self-awareness and acknowledging one another's giftedness. Um, Tom has a lot of practical experience, giftedness, knowledge in, in pretty much every area. Pretty much anything Tom says, I'm eager to defer to unless it's a conviction before the word of God. And then I'm asking questions because I'm suspect of my own opinions. But, but, um, as it relates to business and budgets and finance things, Tom ran a business for 30 years, 40 years, 150 years. <laughs> it was <laughs> for, a long, for a long time. I mean, he's just, he just has seen things and navigated things um, that I just, I'm just naive to. Um, not that I have like horrible practice. I'm just naive to. I haven't, 
I haven't been around that long. I haven't been in that world for quite a while. And so it just makes it really easy to say, Tom, what do you think? Okay, let's, that, that sounds good to me. That's not violating any convictions. And I think there's wisdom there. And there's times when I've voiced, hey, I, my preference would be to do things these ways. What do you think? And Tom will go, yeah, that sounds good to me. And within his framework, it isn't violating anything and he sees the merit and he's happy to defer. So it it just hasn't, I don't know if that's getting at the time. Is there a specific issue that you... Yeah. <laughs> well, what's really nice is it's easier when you're all levitating because of your own personal holy. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> it, it does not. It it does not always go clean and pretty. I I will say, um, how the Lord has formed the elder board at Gilbert Bible Church is just extraordinarily sweet and and peaceable and easy. It, it's been the easiest, not from like we never have to talk about hard issues or make hard decisions, but coming to unified decisions. It's just been easier than any other season. Some of that is just, just three. There's just three of us. And that's what I heard it was more like early on at Grace with three or four elders. Um, you get more elders, more diversity, more opinions, variation in giftedness, likeness in giftedness, some of those things transpire, it gets a little bit harder. Where we got most, I mean, some of the things, I mean, it was not uncommon for two elders to talk after an elder meeting and seek each other's forgiveness. I didn't listen well. I jumped in too quickly. I imposed myself on your ministry. We, we, We absolutely have to navigate those things. It's, it's like this. If, if, you're, if your husband, every time he can, defers to your preference, what do you want to watch? I kind of like this. Okay, let's watch that. Where do you want to go for dinner? I kind of feel like this. Hey, that sounds good. Let's, let's go to that. Um, what kind of carpeting do you want? I really love this kind of carpeting. Okay, let's go with that. If, if every opportunity to defer to your preference he does, when something comes up, that may even be super obscure. Um, what kind of light bulbs do we want to use? I think we should do this. You're going to be like, whoa, okay. Well, he actually has an opinion. I'd prefer this. No, I really think we should go this way. When, when the nature of all of their conversations is drawing you out because there's an eagerness to serve you and bless you, the moment they say, no, I really think we should do this, you're going to be like, that's easy. You, you're holding to this. Um, I am so convinced that you are committed to my good that this strong preference, I can, I can defer to that. It, it's similar with Tom and Tyler. They are so quick to defer to others, each other's preferences that if they actually say, I really think this is the way we should go, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm not wondering if your motives are pure in this. I believe it. And, and I don't have a biblical reason to not go that way. So I, I support that. It just kind of, it kind of works. I, sometimes it doesn't work as quickly as you want. And that was actually the unanimity that we functioned as with elders of Gilbert. The main downfall of that was exasperating sheep because of our slowness. And a lot of that slowness came 
through fighting for unity, even among convictions and, and even various preferences. So it's not always quick and smooth. Um, someday that'll be the case at Gilbert Bible Church. You guys are gonna be like, what are the elders doing? They're dragging their feet on this. And we're like, we're just working. We, we're fighting for unity. It's worth it. And we have, to, we have to navigate these things and it can't always get there as quickly as you desire. So it, it just takes a, um, you know, if it's a conviction or a wisdom thing, that's different. Like, I, we won't defer to the most immature perspective because we love the church. We, we want to strive towards the most mature response. If it's not an issue of maturity or effectiveness of ministry or benefit to the sheep, then we'll defer. If we actually think this is permissible, but it's actually, det- it's, not, it's not as good as it could be for the sheep, we're not going to just defer to somebody who holds a strong opinion about what's not helpful for the sheep. We draw them out. This is why I don't think that's helpful for the sheep. What do you think? And we have those kinds of conversations, but wow, two for two with the rambling and not really totally. (laughs) It's a really good, it's a really good question and it's hard to really fully explain how sweet it is when it seems like it should be harder than it harder than it is. But I, I will say there were seasons at Grace where it was hard and we labored to come to unity and to navigate different preferences. Um, and some of that, especially like maybe 10 years ago, there was some confusion, maybe even particularly among a couple of elders with, I have an accountability before the Lord in my shepherding that I give an account for And so I want to do things the way that I think are best. And so I'm holding preferences as convictions and holding my preferences of another man's ministry under hostage by my preferences because I have to give an account and I'm a shepherd here. And all of it was done with sweet love for the Lord and love for the, I don't want to frame all the elders um, should have been eldering were contributive. It's not like, oh, wow, that sounds horrible. No, they love the Lord and love the sheep and they just wanted to do what they thought was best. But there was some lack of maturity on how to hold preferences, especially in another man's delegated responsibility. Um, and that can be hard. So we're, we're actually going to have a lesson, I think early next year on how to think through preferences and convictions and how to develop convictions, how to hold them, how to, how uh, preferences arise and how to hold those as well, because it's it's just important as part of the body of Christ. Okay, any last question? Our time, our official time is up. Any other questions or follow-up questions? When thinking through conflict, I'll say the number one, okay, two things. First of all, uh, if you find yourself at conflict and really struggling to resolve it, ask for help. That's, these, these are the types of things that are the church's business that we should be a part of. And so any of the elders would love to help you in regards to addressing you in relation to any conflict you're in. The number one request we typically get, not necessarily from Gilbert Bible Church, um, but especially at large, when people kind of come into the church and want help, the, but, but sometimes it comes up out of us. The number one request is, can you change the other person? <laughs> it sounds comical. 
It's just true. <laughs> um, or, or this, can you help me know how to navigate how horrible the other person is? So it's like a sincere, like a veiled, sincere request sounding for personal help in how to navigate how horrible the other person is. And that's how I'm trusting the Lord to deal with the other person is by maybe, you know, they really, I need help, but they really need help, but I need help. Um, Some of these principles of the source of conflict, that's just where we need to leave it. We need to be addressed. But if we're struggling in conflict with one another, um, and, and you've labored in these principles and are struggling in them and want help, Tom, Tyler, myself, I'm I'm sure there's many others qualified in the church to be able to come alongside and help you navigate that. And it shouldn't just be something, well, I'm embarrassed to say that my husband and I are struggling with this, or this person in the church and this other person are struggling. I'm I'm embarrassed. Everybody else seems to have it together, and I seem to be the only one. First of all, that's not the case. (laughs) You're not the only one. And even if you were, holiness is still worth it. And so ask for help. So you're not the only one. Don't be embarrassed. Uh, it's, it'd be more shameful to continue on in it and not just deal with it. Um, and so ask, ask for help, love to help, and um, I'll end there. All right. If you have any follow-up questions, I'll, I'll stick around. Otherwise, I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you for reconciling the greatest conflict and the biggest um, point of strife and dissension and enmity in our lives, in our disposition towards you. And you did that at great cost, crushing your son, crucifying him, pouring on him the wrath that I deserve, that we deserved. And Lord, you did this in love. You were patient, long-suffering, gracious. You lavish us with kindness and a great mercy and grace. And so we give thanks. Help us, likewise, to be long-suffering with one another, to rush in our hearts to forgiveness, to put off any bitterness. Help us to be peaceable. Help us to be godly. Help us to grow. Help us to be good repenters when we fail. We pray that you would be glorified through the unity that you intend for and grant to uh, Gilbert Bible Church. We ask these things in Jesus' name.